Good morning. This is Jen. I'm here with the first episode of our season number three. I'm out in the woods. Um, it was a bit of a trick to get here. I'm joined by, let me just create this list in my mind because you're kind of um, a renaissance, no, <laughs> yeah, maybe a renaissance man, but you are an author, musician, stonewall builder, and stone mason. Stone mason. Mm-hmm. Should have known that one. And then also a therapist. Correct. Yeah. Welcome, Dean. Welcome to your farm home, <laughs> your farmhouse. Welcome to my living room. Yeah, this is so cool. Thank you so much for saying yes and being open to this experience. You're absolutely welcome. So, you know, I always think about how do I get into these interviews with people I barely know. Um, and I'm not sure if you know this backstory, but a friend of mine, Hope, who I'd met years ago, she's this beautiful um, artist, um, naturalist, and she had invited me over for dinner and I barely got through the door and she had a copy of Kiss the Babies in her hand. And she was like, Jen, you have to read this. And you know, books are a funny thing because they're very, um, intimate and personal, and we don't all love the same things. But anyways, I read Kiss the Babies, um, put it in the store. You did a book reading, signing, and then I said, Dean, (laughs) you need to come on the podcast. And here we are. Well, I appreciate it. Um, Marketing is a funny thing, you know, when you, uh, so that was my first attempt at a novel. And would you call it a novel in hindsight? Oh, absolutely. It's all fiction. <laughs> there's, there's no connection between reality and, and you know, the, that story. Is it your perception of fiction? Um, I think it's fairly universal perception of fiction. I think that any writer would tell you that, you know, a writer of fiction would tell you that, um, yeah, it's mostly, a lot of times autobiographical. There are threads. There are always yeah. threads, yeah, right? Yeah, and some are just, you know, just absolute uh, autobiographical others, you know. Um, so, I, you know, On the Road, apparently, was, you know, it's considered fiction, but... You are much better read than I am. Like, as you know, <laughs> I've only been here, like, 10 minutes, and you're spousing all of these different novels, and I know I should have read them, <clears throat> but not even close. Well, you know, um, I, I guess that was one of my earliest influences with the beat writers. I was born mm-hmm. in the fifties. What guys. does that mean? You said beat. that earlier. Um, it was a, it was a school of writers, um, back in the fifties, post world war two. Um, so Jack Kerouac, he wrote on the road, which was a story of basically, you know, young people flitting about the country doing drugs. Sort of, it was a precursor to the sixties, mm-hmm. you know, um, a lot of, uh, free love, I guess, you know, you could call it. Did he it. usher the sixth season? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think the yeah. Beats did, you know. Um, so it went from, that's where the term beatnik came from. You know that term. I know redneck. Redneck? That's <laughs> <laughs> not. No, a little different. <laughs> like, it's so funny, like, our journeys and the world they create around us, right? Yeah. So, you know, um, so he wrote that book, became almost instantly famous from it, for mm-hmm. it, and he died at a relatively young age. So there was been, there's been a lot of biographies written about him and his group of people. Um, Neil Cassidy, uh, uh, William Burroughs, um, 
uh, Allen Ginsberg, you know, so it was a work of fiction and yet every character in the book um, was somebody in reality. And it was, you know, it was very close to, to reality. I think, you know, one of the projects I worked on is I took, I had a screenplay and it was my job. I didn't write the screenplay and it was my job <clears throat> to take the script and turn it into a novel. And that was my first entry into ghostwriting. So what did I, to keep the character straight, right? Because you're 300 pages in and how do you remember what color eyes they had or what, you know, what are their mannerisms? And so what I did is I signed each character with someone I knew, mm -hmm. you know, and I wrote that down. Mm -hmm. So all I had to do was look at who I had assigned to for that character. And I instantly had all of these vivid memories and, you know, intimate knowing of who they were. Right. And so, that, you know, imagine then when you're writing your story and it's not, you're not really signing. <laughs> they are. Wait, so, <laughs> so jumping right into the, well, there's one thing I want to say. So you kind of live in the boonies, like mm -hmm. you're 11 minutes from where I live, which is kind of funny. So, but to get here, you warned me that it, it might be a bit of a trick, right? Like just that it looked like a logging road or something. Mm -hmm. So, but I didn't expect you to be right off of a main, a main drag. And then, but as I'm as well, I ended up having to do a giant U-turn, but as I'm on your, your driveway, yeah. the road to your farm, I was in your book. I was, you know, you were looking out your window and it's been a while and my short, my long-term short-term memory is horrible, but the character that the young girl mm -hmm. that was, you saw pulling into your driveway, mm -hmm. it was very eerie. Like I felt like I was in that book or in this movie and that it I can't even explain it, Dean. It was just like, Oh my gosh, I'm in the book, you know, in those kids movies where the, they literally fall in as a character into the, mm -hmm. it was the strangest feeling. That's pretty cool. I, I like that. Can you, did you ever imagine that you, when you sat down to write your book, that it would get number one, get read. And then two, that it might possibly affect people you don't know in very big ways. That's a great question. Um, that was probably, a, you know, that was probably the secondary mission and, and it, it, it would be a, total bonus if that ever happened mm -hmm. you know uh, the primary rationale for writing it was both twofold one was it was therapeutic and the other was that you know someday somehow some way my daughters who are a huge part of the book the, you know the inspiration for the book and, and it's all about them even though they don't they don't appear a lot in the book intentionally that someday they'll if they haven't read it already that they'll read it and understand it, it this is this is an explanation for them you know the listeners have no idea what we're talking about but do you want to do a quick like <clears throat> should we do a quick summary of the book sure. uh, so kiss the babies mm -hmm. so kiss the babies the term itself um was something that a buddy of mine who appears in the book and oddly enough i ran into him recently and he was very 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 unhappy about the book yeah <laughs> did very you just unhappy. smile did, how no, did you I handle that? Had, you know, honestly, we, I felt like it was a possibility mm -hmm. that we were going to get into it. And you got into it? Uh, a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. So, so he was, you know, back in the day when we were working together, when he was my 
helper, assistant, mm -hmm. uh, co-worker. And this was building walls? Stonemaster, yeah. Yeah. Talented guy, incredibly talented dude. I won't say his name because he, if he ever heard this, he'd be very upset. Because uh, Anyway, um, I was going through this, I, I guess it was, you know, a lifelong uh, issue with my kids where their mother was actively uh, trying to put a kink, if not destroy our relationship. It's called parental alienation. Um, back then, it wasn't particularly well known, you know, the, the term or, or the action um, is when one parent intentionally tries to destroy the relationship with the other parent between the children and their parents for reasons that would come under the, the, the heading of mental illness. It really is. It's, it's child abuse. And, well, it's awful. And it's really, really, really prevalent out there in the world of divorce and, and whatnot. So anyway, um, <clears throat> my buddy knew this was going on and I could have talked about it a lot. And every time, every time we would part company, which pretty much every day, mm -hmm. he would, he would tell me, kiss the babies. And your girls are twins. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was just a sweet thing to say. It's a very sweet thing. It's a very, you know, it's a parting with love. It's just, mm. you mm -hmm. know, I've got you, I'm thinking about you. Yep. This is what's important to you, and I know it, and I'm recognizing. Yeah, that's that's probably one of the sweetest things. Yeah, incredibly sweet. Sadly, he couldn't. He, you know, and I tried to portray that. You know, was his character. He's kind of a minor character in the book, um, but I also portrayed, you know, some of his flaws because I was trying. I, the thought being that we're all flawed. We're all struggling. You know, so I didn't want my characters to come off as as superheroes or perfect people because we're not no um someone said to me that life is struggle period yeah, it's a buddhist thing that's one of the main <laughs> that's one, one of the, the main, main tenets of buddhism yeah, it's, it's this is going to be hard you know yeah. um so yeah so the premise um so um of the book was basically that this it just happened, you know, this this um, set of circumstances happened where the mother of my children, who I, you know, uh, it just doesn't speak highly of either one of us. We, we barely knew each other. Uh, we dated for a little bit, five weeks, and then said, and we both were like, "Oh, this is a bad idea," <laughs> and you know, we went our separate ways. But then three or four weeks later, she just called and said, "Hey, yo." <laughs> That's um, interesting. So you knew, right, from the onset almost. I that I was going to be trouble. Well, that it wasn't. It wasn't healthy for either of you to stay together. Oh yeah. Oh, that was clear. But yeah. the universe had another. Yeah. <laughs> so you're so you're describing your life, but we're also talking about kiss the babies. Correct. The piece of fiction. <laughs> right. Total fiction. Absolutely. Total, total <laughs> fiction. So, so a quick summary, because I want to get into some things that come from your book that will lead us to other conversations, is that this man who um, has emotional depth, has grown up working with his hands, um, sees value in history, and um, I think has a passion for sociology. Um in culture, 
he he's at a loss when he loses the one thing that he probably values more than anything else and that's contact with his children and then he sets off on this journey to kind of rediscover who he is in the absence of that contact with what he loves most and this journey finds him in some pretty remarkable places so my girlfriend came in the store. She read the book after I handed it to her. She was from Freedom, New Hampshire. Oh, the character? Or no, friend? my friend. Really? She was from Freedom? She worked at the place that the character worked. Get out of here. And it was so weird. And I was like, is that a real place? I said, of course it is. Oh, wow. So she came in. So she was hugely affected. And so that was... So that was a facility. I don't know what the proper terms are now these days. It was a facility for um, juveniles or no, it was, young adults. It was on paper. It was a, called a neuro rehab facility mm -hmm. um, for people with brain injuries. Okay. But the reality was they were taken in. Uh, uh, so it was all age groups. Uh, there were two separate uh, sort of uh, camps there. There were kids, kid, kid side and adult side. And, mm -hmm. um, the majority of the kids I would say had were had severe, severe, severe autism, and that's not a brain injury. No. So this facility was really playing with the rules. It was playing, with, and it was more of like, a, and this sounds horrible, but a drop center in a way, yeah. like people that didn't know how to help others in their lives, right? Like, correct. Didn't have the ability. Right. Right. And some of it's understandable. Uh, you know, it's not a perfect world. No. We don't have a perfect health system or government governing no. policies. It's not there yet. No, not far it's from pretty it. pretty archaic. Yeah. And it's interesting that <clears throat> not long after um, the character. So the character <laughs> finds himself working at this facility mm -hmm. and quickly re realizes it's not where he wants to be. It's terrifying. Yeah, for so many reasons. I worked as an ed tech with behavioral kids for five years in my life, untrained, but you had to have a bachelor's degree to make $13 an hour, which yeah. I never could reconcile that. But anyways, yeah, it's terrifying because the world that you assume that you live in suddenly crumbles in front of your eyes, right? There is not a, I always thought like the police were going to show up when anything bad happens. Mm. I always thought that, you know, the hospital would fix anything. That's, and it's funny, I grew up, I was, um, had early childhood trauma, but yet I still had these naive notions about the world, that there was this huge giant safety net that would catch everyone. And then I ended up being an ed tech for behavioral kids. And then I ended up sitting on the health and human services committee. And I think it was like this giant sledgehammer trying to like, break those beliefs. Like hmm. this is not the world you live in. Hmm. The good guys don't always show up. Right. Yeah. You know, that, that, that term, that word naive is really interesting because I think that when you, when you first hear it or say it, or you think about it, it's sort of a negative, you know, oh, you're so naive. But I, I you know, um, I'm wildly naive. Still am. Is that a choice? I still feel no, like no. I am about the world in general. Yeah. No, it's not a choice. It's just, you know, it, it, it's, certain things exist that you couldn't possibly imagine that, like, holy cow, man will do that? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit of an anomaly for me. And I think that's probably part of my journey. Hmm. 
And I, you know, and I have many clients that right after getting to know them fairly well, that will, you know, come to the conclusion and share it with them that, you know, I think you're kind of, you're probably a fairly naive person. And I think that's, it's a fairly admirable attribute. And I, I don't encourage anybody to lose that. It's kind of do you innocent. think it's a, do you think it's nature versus nurture? Do you think it's genetic? Do you think it's environment? That's a, that's a good what question. What is, too. what is naivety? Like, it's not like brown eyes or blue eyes, right? No, no. I, Something born from. Wow. That's a, that's, I hadn't really thought about that one. That could, that could be passed along, you know, because um, genetics isn't just your immediate mom and dad it goes no, back ancestral, to right like <laughs> right. your ancestral dna like i don't know like because i come from a family of five and i am the most naive i'm the the youngest which goes against logic too right if i'm the youngest of five i've already been there done that seen it mm. Mm. i don't think that you know anything that anybody can tell you an older sibling a mentor a mom and a dad um i don't think if you are truly naive, I don't think any words can really fix that. Isn't it amazing? That's what I love. I love the study of human beings and like societies. It's because it's, it's like the great unknown to me. Even with all the science and yeah. all the histories, there's so much that's still like, it's a guessing game. I, I actually find comfort in that, that we don't know all, you know, neurology, for example, you know, it's, uh, it, Neurologists will tell you, yeah, we don't know, <laughs> and I like that. I, 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 you know, I find it, I find it sort of comforting that we haven't gotten to a place where you can, you know, we can quantify everything. I like the mystery, you know. Yeah. Like, holy shit, we'll never come see again if I could do that. I can always say fuck on this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it depends. It depends what we're talking about. But like the whole idea. So what it has taught me in that what you're talking about is we don't know everything truth to me is fluid perspective is fluid and that's that's what i hold on to as i grow and get older because to think that you're right and then to lose that that's that's a hard battle right to have to let go that you what you once believed or thought was reality doesn't exist anymore like the world was flat right. believed to be flat at one point can you imagine the people that were born in that time and mm -hmm. then on the precipice had to decide if they were going to stick with flat or go with mm -hmm. Like, no, and that's, it's a perfect sort of <clears throat> connection segue into back, you know, back to the book and I'm not trying to direct, no, please but, do. but this is, you know, this event, this thing, uh, parental alienation, you know, the character, the, the protagonist had never heard of that before, you know, it had to have it explained to him <clears throat> by a psychologist, you know, a buddy, mm -hmm. um, who explained not only what parental alienation was, but what borderline personality disorder was, you know. Because the, the protagonist was like, I don't know what I'm looking at with right. this situation with his children and the mother of his children. It's like, what? This is beyond What's happening? believability. Because, you know, the protagonist was raised in a pretty solid nuclear family where we may not like each other all that much all the time, but we had each other's backs. And you know, nobody would ever quit the other. Nobody would ever talk shit about the other. Well, maybe a little, you know. No, but thoughts of family are very different. Yeah. Yeah. So this was just like even when it was explained to him, here's what you're looking at, okay? Wait, so now to clarify, the protagonist, so you're talking about when it was described to the protagonist in the book? Or Both. when it, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so 
you know, in, in the protagonist. And how do you find your balance in all of that, right? That's, that's, that's the that's whole premise the whole, of the book. That's the book. That's, You've been split apart. Yeah. And you find yourself so out of balance. Your beliefs so destroyed. Your ideas of what family is, what it should be, what it can be, what it will be. Everything's tested yeah, yeah. in your place in it. And to have your love for your children questioned, not only questioned, but refuted. It, it, yeah, you're balanced. <laughs> you're completely out of balance to the point where um, you don't know if you can function anymore, which is, I guess, a euphemism for saying you become suicidal. You're like, I can't. This just doesn't. I'm too tired. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, this doesn't. This is unacceptable. <laughs> well, I think with um, with suicide is you can't imagine a way through it, <clears throat> over it, under it, around it. Right. Exactly. You you've hit the end of the road, and there you're just. Yeah, it's which, the curtain call. Yeah, I think, and that I think when you're using the the, the term balance, you know for trying to navigate your way through this world, you're, you're just so out of balance that, that, um, you can't find a way back, you know? Um, so that's, yeah. So, but that, so that place, which you write so eloquently about, and like, as I was reading it, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain meter that a reader has when they're taking this information in that, or I feel like I could feel the experience so authentically that I knew this was this was more than just a thread, right? Mm -hmm. Like you accept that works of fiction have threads from real life experiences, but when you're reading something and it's so genuine and authentic, I knew that you had felt it. I knew that you had experienced it. I don't, when I was reading it, I didn't know who you were. Mm -hmm. I'd never met you, but I knew the author had truly experienced what he was writing about. Yeah. So when you're talking about writing, you know, um, <clears throat> I mean, that's, I, I, I'm just assuming that that's how it works with most writers, but I, but I also have a lot of admiration for writers. Well, but let's think about Stephen King. Look at how many <laughs> books has he written? About well, how many different situations, and if they have all been part of his story or pieces of them, I have to think that a dog wasn't reborn from the graveyard. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bet that it wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, so that's a whole other sort of um, so imagination. Yeah, it's a skill set. I think it's a skill set. Yeah, and I really admire that. You know, when you read something and go, well, of course, I'm not a science fiction guy, so, you know, um, I'm, I'm not that familiar with that genre, but obviously that stuff is not, I mean, it's based off science and, and uh, but say, say you, there are layers, right? So like when I, so I blog every day mm -hmm. and for me, writing is more of an expression more of like what I think what you were starting to say when we first started this conversation is we write for many reasons. For me, writing was a catalyst of moving through everything that was convoluted inside of me, preventing me, weighing me down, holding me back, writing through all of that to find out, okay, 
what's really going on here? Who am I really? Mm-hmm. What what am I really supposed to be doing? Like that's that's what I find in my writing. Not mm-hmm. so much about I'm this sage <laughs> with this platform and I'm going to solve all of these issues for the world. No, really, it's taking an internal look at myself and say, fuck, how do I get through this day? Mm-hmm. How do I not even sometimes how do I get through this day? How do I get through these feelings in this moment? That's what writing is for me. It's like a dropping a solid. What's a, I'm not my. I think of it like in science, right? Like if you drop a drop of something, it clears the water. What yeah. is that? Do you know what that is? What I'm talking about? Sol, um, solvents. Okay. Forgive yeah. me, but like that's that's <laughs> writing to me is like clearing mm-hmm. up all the darkness and the cloudies. When I try to write, um, when I wrote the children's book and the other. Um, things, projects on ghostwriting. It's a stretch for me because I lean so heavily on my own personal narrative to venture into that world of imagination, like Roald Dahl, like that great children's mm-hmm. author, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm supposing they use pieces of themselves to get to that higher level of imagination. I don't know. Yeah, they're masters, though. Yeah, you don't know. <clears throat> it's funny because um, um, if, if and when I do the next project. When? Okay. Because I've already heard you talk about it three times and I don't even know you, so when? Yeah, well. Um, Will it be a stretch for you? Well, I want it to be. You know, um, I, want to, I want to come at it from a different angle than, you know, because of Davis. And I want to do the same sort of, you know, autobiographical you know fiction. What, when you do autobiographical biographical fiction when I blog daily I'm very I I'm I have this knowing that it's a fine line right because Mm -hmm. I'm writing about my life and my feelings but there's an intersection there are a lot of people in this world right Mm -hmm. and they may not want their information out there yeah so it's like a tightrope to walk well you know I'm going to drop another another (laughs) book on you but um, Thomas Wolfe wrote, you can't go home again. But it was about Asheville, North Carolina. And which you, you included North Carolina and kiss the babies, didn't you? Oh, or South, you South, South Carolina. Yeah. Um, but the idea being that he, he revealed too much about too many in his hometown. And he said, you can't go back because <laughs> he pissed a lot of people off apparently you can go back but what does that look like right alienation and isolation right um so your book i kind of want to get through to the end of it or to finish surmising it because i had some ideas of where i wanted to go today which never always pan out because what i can't do is stay on topic (laughs) as i'm not a great co-host or host But so you, in experiencing that loss with something you love so much and treasure so much, you go on this incredible journey and it's this journey of constantly reinventing yourself. And Um, and there's a parallel with the esoteric world that you also, you kept sucking me in through different parts of your novel because it felt very familiar, almost too familiar at times. (laughs) And then you get to, it's Charleston, right? And you have a conversation with your father. Yeah, that comes a little bit later. You know, there's there's two trips to Charleston. One is when um, so the protagonist um, made acquaintance with a very 
sort of odd acquaintance with this young woman who worked there uh, and was getting the absolute shit kicked out of her by the clients, the patients. Mm-hmm. She was a, I forget what the term was, an attendant or something, but you're basically, you know, you're in the cabins where these kids lived. You're helping them shower, you're helping them get dressed, you're walking them to their classes. Um, and there's just constant random violence, you know, the, the brain injured or the autistic. I do know. I lived that. I would go home with bite marks, scratches, and it's like, it's a scary world. It is. And I just, I'm not wired for that. You know, I just, I'm just not. But when you came to that realization that you're not wired for that, because I also came to that realization that this is too much. I, I lasted five years, which is only because I had lost my business and I was going through a divorce and my whole world imploded. So it was more like, and it was the recession. So those jobs were few and far between. Hmm. So, but when you come to that point that you can't do it any longer, what I felt was failure and if I walk away, these people and these problems are still here. And if I can't do this and I'm not willing to do this, who is? That's that's what I left with. That's very noble. <laughs> I'm not noble, but I still left. Yeah. Like, you know, but it tugged. It, uh, you know, the protagonist didn't care about any of that shit. <laughs> is that the difference between a man and a woman, though? Maybe. Like the nurturing side versus the... Um, okay. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. That's um, so you left it and you closed the door and you were like, thank effing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was just, and it, it's not the first time that, you know, in, in, in my life, you know, the protagonist, I don't know what he, uh, who the hell knows what he did. Before. What's the protagonist's name in the book? Holmes, H O L M E S, Jensen, J E N S E N. So I came up with that because um, my my dad's hometown is Holmes, New York. And, and I like, and the whole sort of theme is about home, H O M E. What is it? You know, um, where is it? What Mm. does it feel like? And then Jensen is my mom's uh, maiden name. And they're both very important players in in the book. Do you feel like this book? And I think you kind of alluded to it. This book is a bit of a legacy for your children in a legacy in the loosest terms that something for them to reach to when they may start to have questions or so. want answers. I hope so. Or if anything, it's an insight into um, their dad because they've been fed a lot of bullshit. Yeah. Who their dad is. You know? Truth has a way of always rising to the top and coming out. You know, it could take. I wish I could. I wish I could believe that. Maybe not in your lifetime, unfortunately. Bingo. <laughs> that's, that's, right? Yeah. You have yeah. no control over that. Nope. But no. eventually. Maybe. I hope so. I'm not counting on it, but I hope so. Well, I don't think, I don't think you can count on that and exist and find joy right now if you're waiting around for mm. something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the secret. It's one of them. Yeah. Um, so, all right, what is, how else would you like to surmise this book? Because I am dying to ask you some, some questions. Well, it's, you know, it, it basically the, 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 the entirety of it is this individual, um, trying to find a way 
to keep going, basically. You know, um, I mean, hopefully it's interspersed with a lot of humor. There is humor. Yep. Um, then in the midst of this darkness, because not only is he losing his children, he, I mean, he's watching this thing unfold right in front of his eyes. It's like a very, very slow motion car wreck. You know, from when he sort of absorbed, you know, from the information he got from his psychologist buddy, what was happening. And you could kind of map out, and this is how it's going to go. Because it's very predictable, but you can't do a damn thing about it. That's so that, so you, so the protagonist had that or also, yeah, had that information that, okay, these are the behavioral patterns and this is, this is the cycle of this toxic action. This is the way it's going to play out. Right. So it's, it's a combination of... But there's nothing you can do with that type of personality to get in there and affect... Very difficult. You know, I remember when my buddy told me that, you know, um, what you're looking at coming from the mother of your children is probably a personality disorder called borderline personality disorder. And I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and when he explained it to me, um, then he... Then he Put a cap on it by saying, and there's not, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, as a clinician, he said, we, for the most, if you, once you determine if a client is coming in and you can kind of diagnose that they have borderline, you, you drop them immediately. Really? Yeah. He said, because there's not going to be a good outcome and probably you're going to get yourself in trouble. So, so what is borderline personality? What, what does it look like? Like, tell me about someone in, that we would all recognize, that we could hold on to it. Donald Trump. His borderline personality. He has his own reality. They have their own reality. And it's just they hold fast to their beliefs, they're, regardless they're of... They're never wrong. They're never wrong. Anything that bad happens is not their fault. Um, How does that, like, <clears throat> compare to narcissism? It's, it's, it's Narcissism is a big chunk of it. See, mental health is, is like the DSM-5, which is all about diagnosing, mm-hmm. is, I, I think it's just silly because it's very difficult. It, it wants to pinpoint precisely what, what something is. Yeah. Like then, bipolar. Like, yeah. 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 To I me, mean, it's like a huge umbrella, right? Yeah. yeah. Or I mean, manic. It's, or... It's a spectrum of all this stuff, and it's a smorgasbord of all things. So narcissism is a huge part borderline personality disorder um and all the all the, the joys that come with it you know? the rage uh, uh, rage um uh incredible difficulty maintaining relationships um uh, fear of abandonment and it's not it's not a genetic uh, uh affliction it is a an environmental one meaning that um it's not it's not like uh, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Which it's is not called... born from your genetics. No, it's, it's born from be... nine times out of 10, a, a horribly dysfunctional upbringing. You know, uh, oftentimes you're raised by a parent who was mentally ill or abusive. Or... So some, some of the children I worked with had a failure to attach. So intimacy or bonding mm-hmm. or communicating or... It's feeling survival. safe. So yeah. it was all, all trigger moments, yeah. everything triggered. It's pure survival on the part of the borderline. So, um, 
you know, that's one thing that I've come to sort of reconcile the whole thing is that, you know, I, I don't harbor that much resentment, anger, any, any, you know, to the mother of my kids because she is just trying, trying to survive in this world. I have this naive premise about life in general that we all do the best that we can do. It's just our capabilities are just so vastly different in any given moment. In the moment, we do the best that we can do in that moment. Yeah. So, you know, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just a shame. <laughs> all of it. It's, it's just a shame because it's, you know, um, we're a very flawed species. And like I said, we're just doing the best we can. Um, and I have no doubt in my mind that, you know, this, and, and, and intentionally I left the mother of the children out. And I, didn't, I never mentioned the term mm-hmm. parental alienation once in the book. I don't think. Maybe no, once. I didn't. So <clears throat> I didn't pick up on any of that. Like, and I think that's what, what held the book together was that it really was about your struggle with your your relationship or non-relationship with those girls. And it was, there was an acceptance of like, okay, my actions, my choices, my beliefs got me to this moment in time. And it was really like having that, like just being like that. It was, you let us into a place that most people don't get to you know, people will talk about their successes and their achievements and how they got there. But you were talking about this place in life that could bring you to your knees Mm -hmm. and you were letting us into your thoughts and your pain. It was never about the outside influencer factors that got you to that place. And that, that I really valued because when it comes down to, you have no control over those other things. The only thing you can do or, or wrestle with is yourself in that moment. And that's, that's what it was. And that's why I think I kept reading. Like, yeah, you know, I wonder how you would have felt or anyone would have felt if it was just an exercise of finger pointing, you know? Um, I think that we all have so much of that right now that it's old, it's tired. It's just, it's not proactive. It's reactive. And it, you know, it's, I think that's why we're all spinning in government, spinning in the healthcare world, spinning in our educational system and insurance. It's because it's always been so reactive and full of finger pointing. And it's like, you don't get anything done. There's no growth that can ever come from that. Exactly. And that's what I think I was drawn to in your book is that this was about you trying to either not even find your way out of it because you can't. Right. So how am I going to sit in this and keep going? And that's what your book's about. And like in you allowing that space for this shit to kind of just be there. All of these things kept opening up and you met new people and not great things always. Hmm. Right. But different, different experiences, places and people to allow you a fresh perspective. Yeah. Bingo. And that, that's what is amazing about Kiss the Babies and I think so important. And I think we're, I think the world is there right now. We're all sitting with our shit and saying, okay, are we going to continue reacting 
in the ways that we've been taught or the ways that we know, or are we going to, we're at a pinnacle time, or are we going to choose to look at this in a different way and not react and consider? Yeah. Somewhere along the way, this isn't in the book or anything, but as you're, as you're talking, I think you're doing, I think it's a really great um, description of, of what I was trying to do consciously or not. Right. You know, um, but there's uh, some, there's an expression that I don't even know where I picked it up. I think it was, maybe it was on, on the wall, my buddy's office, this, my, my, a buddy of mine who was a, a, a fish broker in, in the, um, I just, anyway, the expression is, um, I could go down that and tell all the stories about that dude for a while, but. Has he raced down to the docks for the tunas? Is um, that what he does? No, no? He, he, he just, uh, buys and sells fish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but he had a thing, a handwritten note on his wall that said, um, expect nothing, blame no one, do something. Yeah. And it's like, there it is. There it is. How <laughs> so do we, how do we get is, there? This book is basically do something. So when I was handed your book, I felt like even now being in your house, I feel like I'm in my childhood and it's just, it's, it's a weird, weird feeling <laughs> like sleeping on the wooden floors and sleeping bags and, you know, drywall, not that your house is unfinished because your house is gorgeous, but it's, and I'm looking around and I'm knowing that you paid attention to structure first and integrity first and that the house feels strong and it's a very old farm. And I appreciate that because it feels safe. You know, you're working at the heart out hmm. where most people might start with, right? What are people going to notice first? Hmm. That's interesting because when I, I have been here, I bought this in the first year that my, my daughters came onto the planet. Cause I, you know, I, I had a little tiny, tiny, tiny place in Portsmouth. Um, barely 500 square feet, Atlantic Heights. I don't know if you were familiar yeah. with it. Yeah. And I was like, well, this isn't going to work. It's bougie now. I know. I know. <laughs> like I, back yes. in the day, it was I like. Know. Well, you know, back then I thought this had the potential to be quite yeah. bougie. And They're I mean, all little bungalows, right? Yeah. It was They're great. gorgeous. Yeah. Um, well, um, you so, were right. <laughs> you were right. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. Not going to work. So, you know, and I, and I found this place. I, I used to come up to North Berwick, um, almost daily to, to get stone, you know, uh, there's a property about a mile and a half from here where this, this old buck, you know, he had 150 acres and, and he just allowed me to go out on his property and take stone, you know, sell it to me. So I was, you know, I was like, when I started thinking, where can I go? What can I do? How can, you know, I can, how can I find a place that's more amenable to, you know, raising rambunctious twins, you know, a little more room. Mm -hmm. And back then, uh, where somebody just said, you know, you can just get out of Portsmouth and you can, you can find a place that, that's almost affordable, you know? And but so anyway, I found this place. Um, I walked in the first time to look around and I got this total grandma vibe. My dad grew up out in the country and he grew up on a farm and, um, and it was just almost instantaneous. I was like, holy shit. This is Grammy's house. Did you? So you must. You're so well read. Do you know Proust? Uh, a little bit. I haven't. I haven't. Tell me. So he was. Um, 
a philosopher, but also had done a ton of drugs. <laughs> I love him already. But there's this one story that I learned that he had, he was on this high, this psychedelic high, I believe, and he took a bite of a macaroon and it instantly brought him back to his grandmother's kitchen. Every flavor, sound, image, it just all came flooding in. And it was, so he focused on how things can hold so much power to bring you back in time or to transport you to another place. And so you can re-experience and reimagine, you know, yourself in, a, in another world than where you are at that moment. And he wrote like 3,800 pages about it. It's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's stuff isn't all coincidence. No. <laughs> so I was, um, when I got to the meat of your book, which is almost the whole entire book, I feel <laughs> so like. What is the meat? <laughs> it's, not, it's not a slow roll. It's like a boom, 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 boom. I remember um, the first time your book brought me to tears, I was laying in bed. I had just moved. I had just sold my farm. And I realized the choices I had made from certain experiences I had had, some under my control, some not, had put me in a position where I was not the hub for my children anymore. And I have never been so scared in my life. And so you talk about that thing that gets you to the next moment. In that moment, reading your book and about your journey, I was like, oh my God, I'm not the first person this has happened to. And as bad as I felt or as devalued as I felt in trying to make my, trying to get out of a situation to make myself feel balanced again, mm -hmm. to feel like I could find joy again. I had put my children in a position where felt like wasn't stable for them. I had moved yet another time. Mm. I divorced yet another time. Mm -hmm. And I felt so worthless and I felt like, oh my God, right? Like I've messed, I've <clears> messed <throat> up my idea of family for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I was, it was a hard, like not, not suicidal because my dad had committed suicide. So I'm very familiar with all of that. Like very familiar of the red flags and what to be watchful for, but depressed, mm -hmm. working depressed, functioning depressed mm -hmm. because, you know, I have a store in town, blah, blah, blah. Like I have, I blog daily, have a lot of eyes on me. So almost like that feeling like I have to make this through this because I'm being watched. Mm. Is that, that's probably, by, that's probably, what is the, what is the personality disorder you're talking about? <laughs> I probably just diagnosed myself. But regardless, whatever I am, I remember specifically reading your pain about being separated from your girls. And I was like, it was an epiphany in that moment that, okay, life is not what we want it to be. Bingo. You know, um, and being a being a therapist in this neck of the woods, you know, not North Berwick, but you know, Portsmouth, Seacoast, yeah. yeah. Um, that is something that comes up a lot because 
you know, without. We're in a very traditional. Well, we're, we're, you know, um, it used to be uh, more blue collar. It used to be, you know, Navy and, and blue. Everybody's in a row. Everybody has a function. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a job. And like, we're trained as that. We're the worker bees. So if someone gets out of line, it disrupts the whole system. But we're also, at least, you know, a newer generation, you know, iteration of the pot of the of the demographic of Portsmouth is, you know, basically, you know, Caucasian. Um, it's been gentrified. It, totally. And, and entitled. Um, and a lot of people, whether they're very young coming to me or older, things have gone pretty damn well. You know, because this world, our culture has been designed for us. You know, it's white folks that, you know, have means, have been educated. Um, we have it, opportunity. Yep. And it's a shock to people. And I don't care if they're 14 or 75. It's a shock when things don't go the way they wanted it to. You know, there's a reason we have phrases or terms like helicopter mom. You know, our children have been watched over to the extent that they don't know how to fall and get back up. Yeah. And if, if they're not learning those essential skills, you know, people like the one thing people will say to me, because my life has been pretty public just through blogging and all of that, or just <clears> because <throat> I've held different positions in the community that people know who I am. They're like, but you keep getting back up. That's what people say to me, but you keep getting back up. And it's like, what the fuck am I, what else am I going to do? Yeah. Well, that's what else sense. am I not, what else, what else is my option? My only other option besides getting up again is doing what my dad did, right? Like you get to that point and you can't see another option. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's a conundrum. <laughs> it's a conundrum. Well, you know, my joke is like, whether you believe, I believe in reincarnation. And so my closest people around me, they're so tired of hearing this, but I'm saying, this is it. I'm done. I don't want to come back. So any lessons I need to learn, throw them at me hard and fast because I'm going to get through them. I'm exhausted. I don't, I'm done. Like, I feel like apparently you have, I'm ready for Nirvana. (laughs) Let me in. Let me in. I just read, I just finished a book about reincarnation. Uh, many lives, many masters. Do you want to know the books I've read? Like, this is like people will ask me all this time. From age 11, my first book was The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. And then it just went into every self-help, spiritual. Um, I've read the Bible. I've read all of the religious books. I've studied the Hermetic Principles in ancient Egypt. I'm not one. <laughs> I've read a lot of classics, um, but that's it. So, like, well, this one, this book says that you know, if you're done, if you had enough, if you if, if you've lived enough oh lives. Oh gosh, wait, do we need a drum roll? Because I feel like that's where I am. <laughs> well, you have a say in that. So now, so what I unearthed in one of the things that I read is that we all have a choice. Like we're up and wherever. Earth is one of Earth is the Ivy League of all human experiences. All, not human experience, the only human experience. Earth is the um, the Ivy League of consciousness. Oof, it is the hardest. I fucking hope not. Hardest, <laughs> hardest to get in, 
hardest to survive, hardest to figure out, and hardest to thrive. Oh, wow. So we, so when you're up, up there or wherever, you have to sign a soul contract that you're willing to come down and be born into this carnation, right? And so, yeah, I can see myself doing that, right? Like, bring it on, give it to me. Okay. But when you do that, so supposedly, okay, you can roll your eyes at this point. My co-host <laughs> usually does. So supposedly there are 144 life lessons that we all have to learn. A basic premise, right? The whole experience. There's always rules in every system. So when you sign that contract, supposedly what they don't tell you is you're in it for those 144 lessons, whether it takes you one life, five lives, 10 lives, or a thousand lives. Because if you look at certain friends of yours and me with marriage, right? Like I've been divorced three times. It's taken me a while to figure out this intimacy <laughs> thing in this human connection. So I, I'm going to, if it takes, if I don't figure it out in this lifetime, I'm, I'm coming back mm. till I get it right. Mm -hmm. And however, I, so. That notion of this being the Ivy League is absolutely, I'm like, oh, it, yeah. No, but think about it. Like, it is hard. It is, but I'm more. You don't of think it's the, hard? I'm more of the. You're a white male. Well, yeah, it's pretty. I mean, you know, all in all, pretty, pretty, pretty smooth ride. But think of some of the people on our planet and what they go through. Yeah. There's sex trafficking. Oh, yeah. In Maine right now. Yeah. See, so the Ivy League thing. I, I'm gonna really. I'm going to be thinking. Yeah, let me no, but let me hear your gut reaction. Well, no, my, my gut reaction is that in terms of you know who we are in, in the hierarchy of consciousness or whatever, you know, you're looking at it from perspective of, of esteem, right? Like, oh, no development. I think. Yeah, I was like Tom Waits. He's a musician, a yeah. philosopher. He, he he said, as a species, we are monkeys with guns and money. No, I don't disagree with that. I, I'm not, I'm saying not Ivy League because of the evolution we've already experienced. Ivy League, I'm guessing because of the opportunity for evolution, hmm. like everything that we need to evolve from the swamp into <clears throat> Nirvana is available on this one planet. Yeah. You know, that, that makes sense. I don't know if I believe it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know. I, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of another book that is, you know, it's, it's called Sapiens, and it's, and it's, um, it's about Homo sapiens, our, our particular. Have species. you heard? Have you heard the the genetic studies on humans? How like our genetics match with the primates? Prime, what's primates up to a certain point, mm -hmm. and then there's like this big gap of DNA that they can't equate to any other DNA on the planet. Well, there were there were a bunch of other species before Homo sapiens, you know, and we uh, the last one that we eradicated were the Neanderthals, and um, yeah, and there there is still Neanderthal DNA out there. But, but then, there's, how, but there but were, then, like if you look at the Sumerians, the ancient civilization, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's this gap, like it's almost like someone spliced it and inserted. Yeah, I guess you know I, I, our way, our methods of quantifying this stuff maybe are limited. You know, we haven't been able to figure out how to. You know. I feel like the conversation that we're headed into <laughs> is probably best served for another okay. millennia. Okay. I don't know. But like, <laughs> well, part of the book, the um, you know, it's funny. I went to 
um, Newburyport and Topsfield this week with a girlfriend, with two girlfriends. And we're driving home through Topsfield. And I knew that we were going to do this podcast. And we get to this farm. No, we get to these rolling acres of land and there's maple syrup lines running. But then there are also like three feet, two or three feet wide by three and a half feet high, perfectly symmetrical stone walls. And they are, you know, you see them and they're brand new. You like, you can tell a new stone wall, right? Mm -hmm. Like, cause everything's been unearthed and the, mm -hmm. the moss and everything hasn't formed. And it's just, it's perfect. It's like, I felt like I was back in Roman times or something. Mm -hmm. And then you get to it and then there's three guys continuing on like building it. And it was the most cool. amazing thing. And the acres upon acres were meticulously manicured. Like I felt like I was back in like, I don't know, Jane Eyre novel or something. And it was just like, and I thought of you and I thought, and my brother used to build snow walls and he had an excavating company. So I'm, I'm familiar, mm -hmm. right? Like I used to book the deliveries for the drivers, like the work and the thought that goes into building a stone wall. And if you can, anyone can do it, right? Like I've built them in my gardens, mm -hmm. but they look like shit. They just, and it's like, how, how do you, they're perfect. Are you, are you cutting those stones like to get that flat edge or is it all just? Um, well, there's a bunch of different ways, you know, there's different um, techniques. Um, I, I was taught to sort of try to replicate what was here utilitarian, you know, like what the farmers had to do to just kind of clear their fields and stuff. So they wouldn't take the time to do a lot of cutting, you know, um, would they have the tools to cut back then? How would they the just do with very, blunt? Like, they're very rudimentary tools. <laughs> like the little, a like a hammer and a wedge thingy? Yeah, chisel. Chisel? A wide chisel, yeah. Um, you know, I've always admired uh, that technique where a lot of cutting and the joints are super duper tight and stuff, but I just don't, I don't know. Uh, it's not practical. Um, it is if you're getting paid, you know. It's <laughs> what? It is if you're getting paid. If somebody says, this is what I want, and this is what I'll give you to do it, I'm like, okay, I'll do that. So when you get paid for doing something like this, is it based on time? Um, yeah, there's a little bit of a formula. Um, apparently, uh, I, I just did a wall this summer, and apparently I told somebody asked me, you know, what I charged for it, not the client. And I told them, and they said, like, oh, dude, you, you fucked up. <laughs> Why you were you're charging prices from 20 years ago because I haven't done a wall in a while. You know, I just do a number out of them. And they're like, yeah, okay. And I told another guy, you know, he said, what'd you charge for that? And I told him, and he's like, oh, you, you blew it. <laughs> but kind of like going back to your, your novel, like building a stone wall, like if you start thinking about how much you have ahead of you to get done, like that's suffocating. That's overwhelming in a way. Yeah, so you don't. So like moving through your situation with your your babies right like one stone at a time i guess you know i hadn't really thought about that um um yeah i suppose was there a resolution at the end of the book there was mm -hmm. do you want to talk about it well it's, it's tough because um um we really you know the protagonists the characters you know um my daughters and I, in real life, we, 
we worked through all of this and um, they actually came to where I was living. So the, the protagonist, because he really couldn't stand to be in his house anymore, you know, his, his, mm -hmm. his home without his kids, it, it was just unbearable. He left, you know, and, and, and he took all the things that were in the house and made a huge burn pile out in his field and smoked it. And he was like, fuck it, I'm out. Mm -hmm. um, and moved to Charleston. Um, so in real life, um, I, you know, I did that. And my kids, um, my daughters came to Charleston to go to college. Ironically? Miraculously. I like that word. Um, it was just like, holy shit. Yay. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, and that happened. That, that happened. It's in the book and that happened. And unfortunately, um, since then, um, they graduated about five years ago and I haven't seen it since. So another thing that uh, you can't predict or really understand how did this happen? I to this day I'm like I, you know, I'm sure they could tell you, you know, why they don't want to talk to me anymore, but I don't know. I mean, I, it's part of the alienation thing. But so yes, there's a resolution in the book. Um, um, it, the book culminated with um, the horrific Charleston Church murders that happened down there and we happened we were all there for it <clears throat> in real time it all happened like less than a mile from where i was living yeah and um and we, and we witnessed how charleston dealt with that which is basically through love and forgiveness and you know um i, I just assumed that after something that horrible that you know the, the black community would justifiably angry and they weren't it looks very different from what else was going on in other parts of the country where these racial injustices were happening they it was to this day you know it may be the only evidence that i've seen in my lifetime of actual human emotional evolution so like in this tell me what you think love is Huh. That's a great question. It, it's both visceral and ephemeral. You know, it's 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 something you feel in your. And we, we equate it with the heart, but it's you know it's a whole body thing. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of an ethos of you know I. I I'm not a particularly religious guy, but I also think that the golden rules, wherever the hell they came from, are legit. You know, just basically don't be a dick. <laughs> don't be a dick. <laughs> I, I, you know, I believe that everything we need to know to make it through these, and I'm throwing out, I don't know if it's 144 life lessons, but I think there's a reason we're born to accomplish something. I don't know. I, I have a faint glimmer that I think it's to learn how to love unconditionally. Mm. Like, I think we're, I think that's the end goal for each of us, but it's like, I do believe that every tool we need, every thought, everything we need already exists to get us there. And when you said golden rule, 
so there's so much wisdom that's already like been placed in the fables, the fairy tales, the music, the new music, the new books, everything that we listen to, read, come in contact with. There's this little, little bit of wisdom that I think when we hit upon it and it makes us pause, hmm. it's something for us to really consider and wonder if like we've picked up that nugget yet. Hmm. You know, is that something we need to pick up and start using and think about more? Yeah, and I, I, yes, and I don't know if it has to be a conscious decision on your part that, like, yeah, this is the way I'm going to go. Um, I think it's, I think it's about personal choice. You know, however you decide to find balance, that's what you do. You know, and sadly, a lot of people find these days are finding balance and outrage and anger, you know, to kind of counteract something, counteract the feeling of being left out, of being unseen and unheard. Um, um, I mean, I say it, but, you know, we, we are a peer-driven creature, you know, so when we see our leadership being dicks. <laughs> are we going political? Let's go political. Well, I can a little bit if you want, but... Um, I think it's just, When's, when was the last time that we didn't have a dick in a leadership role? What would um, you say? Um, Jimmy Carter. I'm too young. I don't like, I think I was born when he was in office. Okay. Good guy. You know, he floundered and then probably because he was a good guy. <laughs> the thing that comes to mind when you say that are peanuts, like, is that our education <laughs> or my education? Like I first, that's all I remember learning about him. Did he have a peanut farm? Yeah. Peanut farmer. He was also a nuclear engineer. See, like that's crazy. And the fact that someone said that the kids of today know that George Washington was a slave owner and like, Oh my God, but yes, but a trillion other things, mm-hmm. but, we walk away knowing Jimmy Carter was a peanut farmer. <laughs> his, he was brother, an, <laughs> his brother was a drunk. <laughs> Why is it that all the president's siblings are drunk? Well, Clinton, <laughs> like, I, I think you have to be pretty much, you got to be traumatized somewhere along the line to aspire to a position like that. You, you've got to be pretty fucked up in the head to want to actively seek out that kind of, Okay. Or to allow in some cases, right? Like, so the reason I say that when I, like, I, I was asked to run for office. That was never on my radar. I have uh, political opinions and beliefs, but I'm not the type of person that will have a conversation with you to make it my goal to have you align with my opinions. And I don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, and yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of, of, I'm not a historian, you know. Um, the office of president, right, yeah. of, of the United States, yes, you, it's a climb. So you have to actively pursue and want to make that climb. It's yeah. different than a one-term politician like myself. It's not even the same thing. But yeah, so you have to be, to be able to be in the midst of that game, you have to be a little tweaked in perception of a lot of things. Yep. I, I had a buddy <clears throat> uh, in Portsmouth who uh, was Judd Gregg's right-hand man for many years. Judd Gregg mm-hmm. was the, the governor of New Hampshire, then he became a senator. And so my buddy had a you know insider's look into 
you know, the making of the sausage, you know, of governance. And I just asked them, you know, you've met a large number of people that in Congress, Mm -hmm. have you ever met anybody that was not fucked up? And he goes, nope. (laughs) Nope. They're all trying to prove something to somebody, whether it's a, you know, daddy didn't, you know, didn't. Have you ever met a human that's not fucked up? Like, um, I don't know if that's fair to say. Like, name one human. <laughs> Not in this room right now. We're both fucked up. Like, um, yeah, they didn't have their story or their issues. No. But, There's but, not but, but, one but, human but on this planet. But, but it doesn't manifest in this level of ambition that you, it blinds you to being a decent human being. I don't know. Like, I feel like that exists everywhere in every pocket. Like, it does. We Have you ever heard the term silent sidelines? So in sports, in elementary, middle school, high school, there was this new thing that came about called silent sidelines because there was an overzealous group of parents that were toxic, that were affecting the experience both on and off the field in student student athletics. Mm -hmm. So the solution for a while and this is a little bit back ago, was silent sidelines. So you could go and watch your kid. Anyone could go and watch the games, but you had to be completely silent. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if we had silent sidelines in Congress, right? Like, Yeah, that would be that's a good idea. That's, that's let funny. people do their job and no one's allowed to say anything. Like, think about it. Like, that's, like that's no great. matter what people do on the House floor or the Senate floor, no one in the country is allowed to say anything good or bad. No congratulating, no yeah, that, nothing. I had a, a <laughs> I, I played football in high school and I had this, this, this coach that was, he was become somewhat legendary. They, they named the football field after him. Wait, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Rye, but I went to Portsmouth. I, you know, so yeah. you are, yeah, the, you've grown up in a position of opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I'm, you know, I'm over six foot tall. I'm white. I went to college. I You're it. athletic. I got it made. You can communicate. <laughs> and yet, you have it made, right? By all standards in this world, this earthly experience, you have it made. Hmm. Yet, you've struggled something, struggled with something that brought you to your knees, that hmm. it didn't matter what color your skin was. Yeah. Yeah. Your skin didn't. Your skin color didn't protect you. Nope. And it was quite a revelation. You know? Oh, shit. Oh, man. Okay. So back to the premise that we're all going to struggle in some way, yeah. some shape, yeah. some but, form. Know, that's one of the tenets of Buddhism. Struggle is part of the deal. But I think about the populations on this planet that it's just horrific schedule. Struggle. Yeah. And for a long time that like bothered me. and I Because you can't, some things you just can't affect. You can feel the pain, mm-hmm. but you can do, well, in my belief, there's literally nothing I can do for a tribe over on another continent <clears throat> in the rainforest. Mm-hmm. But is there, you know? Well, that's something you have to decide, you know, with yourself, if you're an empath in any shape or form, you know? Um, and this is something that I kind of came to, to a conclusion to a long time ago, is that there's the macro and there's the micro. You know, there's... Uh, and are they one and the same? Like, you no. know, the expression as above, so below. Yeah, I mean, they, they're of the same genre, I guess, you know, but, but it's a very different approach. 
you know. Um, so, you know, I grew up as a kid of the 60s where, you know, um, the generation before me was protesting mightily against the Vietnam War, against, you know, corruption, you know, mm -hmm. Richard Nixon, all that shit. And, you know, it was sort of a rite of passage to get involved on a macro scale. <clears throat> um, and, uh, but you know, did that bring the change? Did that end the Vietnam yeah, to a degree. involvement? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because I mean, politicians are like, oh shit, <laughs> they all vote. They all vote. <laughs> I can't, you know. Um, <clears throat> or, and there's the micro, where, <clears throat> and I think is, personally, I think is just as effective as getting involved on the macro scale is just trying to get back to that thing. Don't be a dick. Try to, try to be a good human being. And that, you know, hopefully. It's the ripple effect. That word. Right? You the know, ripple the, effect. The, the theory is, you know, that, that if you can pass along the golden rules, you know, to your Name offspring. Name three golden rules. Don't kill anybody. Don't fuck your neighbor's wife. That's <laughs> but, two. Um, 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 I, I guess they're like, somewhat like the commandments. You know, uh, uh, what are the seven, seven deadly sins? You know, try, try to, try to avoid those. You know, avarice, greed, gluttony, um, um, envy. And all of those speak to balance and moderation. I guess. Right, gluttony, like okay, eat what you need, not hmm. don't exceed. Right. right. So the idea being that yeah, on the micro scale, if, if if you can pass these things along to your offspring, if you have offspring, then it'll just it'll it'll grow outward. You know, that's the theory. You know, if you can if you can be part of um, helping well, that's somebody. when the micro becomes the macro, right? Essentially, exactly. so you're working from within yes. to affect yeah. the greater change, right? So you know, um, and it's uh, it's tricky. You know, I have no idea. You know, I, I think my children, I hope my children are, are good people, but I don't know. Do you believe? Okay, we're over an hour, and usually we do about an hour, but okay. there's a couple things to wrap up. So I want to talk about empaths because that's like everybody's an empath now, right? Like that's a buzzword mm -hmm. in our in our culture. But I do believe everybody is an empath. I just kind of like everybody is a singer. You just don't want to listen to everybody, right? Like <laughs> there's always varying <clears throat> degrees of certain attributes. Like we should all be empathetic. We should be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes. That shouldn't just be something that's way out, you know, where only a certain percentage of the population gets identified as that. But um, so I want to talk about that. And then, shit, what was, the <laughs> what was the other thing? Oh, so I'll let, I want to hear your thoughts on empaths. And, but I also want to ask you, do you believe, there are good and bad people. Like, do I believe if, I don't know if you believe in God, it's hard. Like, I believe if we're all part of a creative source, I, I have a hard time believing that some are just born bad. I think we're all good in the notion that we all have value. It's our actions, our choices, our beliefs that lean bad and some horrific, of course, I'm not naive to say that 
there's not a dark side to humanity. I mean, we've all come up against it, some of us more than others, collectively or individually. Um, but that whole idea of good and bad, like, so as a therapist, if someone, if someone is casted off as bad, then why keep going? Like, if you're inherently bad and you're bad no matter what you do, mm -hmm. why, why keep going, you know? You mean the bad person? Mm-hmm. Well. We all think certain people are bad, but like we are seeing one side of them. Well, yeah, I mean, I, nobody thinks they're the bad guy. You don't think so? No, no, absolutely not. If, you know, um, <laughs> I got in a little bit of trouble during a, uh, I used to work for hospice. We had a, like a team meeting and in some shape or form, I, I, I equated the work that we did with being a serial killer <laughs> because, you know, a lot of people think that you, you know, hand out morphine. Well, right? no, in hospice, like morphine is made available. Yeah, but no, that's not what I meant. That's what I meant was that, that a lot of people, the majority of people would go, you work every day with, with death? death. You're fucked up. You know, and I, but we that worked at it were like, no, this is just normal. This is, you know, we it's good. And I equated it with, uh, you know, a serial killer. I was like, no, what I'm doing is fine. You know, I, I have my reasons. You know, what's interesting about this is I have a friend that works in hospice. And she is an empath and is taking it. She's probably shouldn't be in hospice. But, like, she feels <clears throat> every day, every death to such a degree that it affects her. Hmm. Yeah, she probably shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> she needs she needs to Teflon up. Yeah. So to us, you know, um, yeah, it's just a day. It's, it's but that's not a bad person. Someone that does hospice, like no, it's not. Bad. What I'm saying is nobody thinks they're, they're they're the bad guy. So what I'm saying is that you know, the culture or any normal person would go, not that the hospice people are bad, but that's wow, that's really weird. Um, no, it's not to us. It and and. and the serial killer doesn't <laughs> think that he's like he because he, it's usually he um is justified and no, I, don't, I don't know if i agree with that because i think like well and all i have to go by is how they're portrayed right but the torment that they're in you know that they i feel like certain times they do know they're doing like horrific acts and they're trying like when they reach out to their the therapist and then hold them captive because they want to Oh, they want to be transformed, yeah. right? Like, why? Well, if people don't think they're bad, why do they go to therapy to get better? <clears throat> um, yeah, to try to, I don't know, to try to unravel the thought To feel better. Yes, yeah. Yeah. You know, to try to get an understanding of, of all of it. So, yeah. And, and I think that that's the notion that nobody thinks they're the bad guy. That's really helped me um, try to accept that I haven't seen my kids in five years. I, yeah. You know, it, it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Well, that's when I was laying in bed reading that. And like what I was searching for between the lines in your book is like, give me a way, like uh, with my, for most of my life as a parent, I was the house that all the kids came to. I was, you know, where the sleepovers were, where the parties were, where, the the heart of like the friend groups or at least one of the hearts so now um i do have relationships with my kids that 
as time goes by, they're coming back in. And, you know, someone said to me, just keep showing up. And that was the little tidbit that I was given that allowed me to have hope, mm. like to keep moving forward. But even now where my home's not the hub or the center, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's hard. It it's is. painful. It is. Like, but then the, I feel, I do feel bad. Like yeah. I'm the bad mom. Like, mm. no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost, not traditional. It's almost, it's almost unimaginable, but the unimaginable happens all the time. So you just, either you accept it and try to make the best out of your days or you don't accept it and you just grind. You let it swallow you up. Yeah. So, and you know, sadly it's, uh, it, it's, it's not, consistent you know some days um you know i'm like okay all right this is rough but that's that's the way it goes other days i want to jump off a fucking bridge you know um yeah i do know i'm just i'm too too damn good looking i can't jump off a bridge the world world wouldn't be able to go on (laughs) the world couldn't live without dean luddington (laughs) i'm beginning to see that i'm kidding (laughs) <laughs> so the last, so to wrap this up, because you're a busy man, what are you doing today? Uh, we're going to trim this thing out. We got to oh, it. it's not going to stay like that? No. I kind of like the natural look. Well, uh, yeah. Um, trim it out. So is it going to be a bookshelf or are you going to enclose flowers, it? Flowers, pottery, whatever. I don't know. Something. I see it as a mini library. Except it's too high up. I mean, I have to get uh, a ladder. Do you keep the books that you read? Um, yeah, and I, I um, um, Sharon gave me a nook or one of those, you know, things. Do you like reading on a tablet? I, I, I do, but but I don't like the fact that I'm buying these things and I read them, then I can't put them on a shelf. I like putting them. On, I like. I collect books. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a book like I generally I love a hardcover book, mm-hmm. and there's just something about it, yeah. the weight of yeah. it in your lap. Um, so you're. You're trimming out your house. Are you working on any stone walls? I'm finishing up that big one I did down in Kittery Point. I got to, sometime this weekend, I got to uh, work at it. I, I, I've taken like a week off because I have company. Um, I do have a seat to a couple, couple clients this afternoon. That's what I was going to say. Are you going into therapy mode? Um, usually Fridays I take off, but I, I, I totally spaced out a guy on Wednesday. I just forgot you didn't show up uh it was a remote thing and i just and you know and i was like oh shit so I, yeah I'm gonna, you're eating crow uh yeah and i'm gonna see him tonight so um so yeah today will be and this guy that's coming that helps me do this is a major character in the book don't say it <laughs> what? wait can you say it yeah it's was he what was his reaction to the book he I, well he comes off pretty well you know so um he's he's a real artist this guy so he just appreciates art creativity yeah you know Creation. so i think that whether he liked the book or not i i know that he appreciates the effort maybe it's not is something good or bad maybe everything is good and bad yeah and if we accept that then yeah, yeah. um so the last thing i want to say okay give me your give me your thoughts on this fascination with empathy and empaths and being designated as an empath right now as is it a badge of honor almost at this point like oh this person's an empath or is it a curse um both you know um that's something that um i talk about a lot with my younger clients you know when i ascertain that they're empathic and, and and sensitive um 
we talk about it and I said, look, number one, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you are, you, you is what you is, you know? Um, and it's the greatest blessing in the world to be able to feel. It's also going to drive you crazy. Literally. Possibly. <laughs> so you think you're, you don't think it's a skill you can hone in on or like, in- you can probably try try to sharpen it or understand what it is. But I, you know, it's like leadership. Either, you know, I don't you're either a leader or you're not. Right. You're born an empath or you're not. Interesting. You know, I, what about old souls? I'm asking for my co-host. He swears <laughs> to God that he is an old soul. If, you know, why not? I always thought I was till my 17 year old said to me, she goes, she goes, you know, mom, she goes, sometimes I think you're an old soul, but then other times you just come off so new. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's again, your expectation of who you think you are. It can be shattered with, you know, just a few words, someone else's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just keeping all options, possibilities open because why not? Keep know? it all open. Yeah. So when you start book two, <laughs> Will it have the same characters or is it no, a whole no, no. new? That, my buddy who was mad at me really shook me up and I, I don't want to do anything like it did in the last book. Do you have an idea of like the setting or? The... Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it's going, I want to involve the stone more somehow. Um, I, so I, this last, this job that I did this summer, um, I, I haven't done them like that in probably 15 years because I, you know, physically I couldn't do it back then, but I'm all healed now. Mm-hmm. But I still assume that this is probably going to be my last one because it's, it's a lot of work. It's hard. I'm 66 years old, you know, I'm not brand new. And um, so I've been taking notes, taking pictures, and um, just, I, you know, the working title is so cheesy that I probably won't use it. But the, the, You've already started writing? Yeah. Um, what is it? The title? Yeah. Uh, the Last Waltz, but with two L's, W-A-L-L-T-Z. Oh. I know. <laughs> but, yeah, maybe not. And The Last Waltz, I think it's been overused. It's yeah. been there, done that. Yeah. But like, you know what? Just let it hold space for it. Yeah. And then, that's um, that's kind of how that works. So yeah. I'll sell it in the books in the shop. Okay. Yeah, I would love to. Um, and for all of you, um, you know what I want to ask you on, on the podcast is... Um, the store's doing re- really well and it's growing. And then, but um, people are asking for online sales because they, a lot of people find the store from all over the world and then they go back and they want to be able to order things. After COVID, I took the website down because it was just like, oh, yes, yeah. one more thing to do. <clears throat> so I'm building up local authors and artists and only so kind of like Sundance with Robert Redford. Are you Mm -hmm. familiar with that catalog? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So kind of offering a Sundance esque version for South Berwick and the Berwicks of local authors and artists. But here's the prerequisite. It can't break in the mail and it has to be small enough to fit in a mailer. (laughs) Like I've like honed down what shipping and everything. Yeah. So um, this is my way of asking, can I add your kiss the babies to the website yeah, to sell? Yeah. 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 That was a lot of words for a quick, <laughs> <laughs> quick yes. You know, I'm just, uh, I, I've always admired uh, or had a romantic vision of, you know, these artists that, you know, like uh, 
Van Gogh who died broke, and, you know. With uh, no idea no clue, of his ripples. You know, um, that's easier than actually marketing. I don't want to do that shit. <laughs> Where it gets tricky for me is my love is marketing and business development. And that's what I grew up doing in technology and traveling the world and with startups. And now, but I'm also creative and I love writing. So mm. the tricky thing with me for marketing is that I can market other people all day long, other businesses. When it comes to marketing my books, forget it. Like I haven't even ordered them. I'm sold out and like, <laughs> I don't even have them on the shelves because it's a hard reckoning. Reckoning. Yeah. Putting yeah. yourself, putting yourself out there yeah. is, is tough. So I'll do it for everybody else. Yeah. Tell their stories and share. Yeah, it's, what it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole other um, thought process in the marketing thing. But in a way, you're kind of like P.T. Barnum, right? What, there's a sucker born every day. No, the greatest <laughs> showman in the world is that, like, what he did is he just put himself out there in a time where oddities weren't valued, right? Mm. Like, and he made a stage for that. Like, you kind of put yourself out there in a book for the whole world to discover, like, I can't think of a, a bigger marketing step than what you did with Kiss the Babies. Hmm. You put it all out there, and it's it's unleashed. Yep. Now I just want to, you know, sit back and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to be famous? Do you want? No. No. No, no interest. None. Isn't that interesting? Is being famous borderline personality? Do you think does that fall into narcissism? narcissism yep <laughs> yeah all right well with that said we're gonna end um this podcast and i just want to say thank you for welcoming me to your farm and being open to have this conversation about tricky things yeah well thank you and i really appreciate it that was, that was really fun we'll see you soon very good <laughs>